0: She will keep our rigged system in place. I alone can fix it.
1: Anything is possible if enough decent people are prepared to stand up against the establishment. Thank you. It's the establishment versus the people. It's our historic duty to make sure the people prevail.
2: Jeremy Corbyn and Donald Trump Erdogan in Turkey and the Five Star Movement in Italy, Podemos in Spain and Rodrigo Duterte in the Philippines, what do they all have in common? They've all been described as populists. There are people like Bernie Sanders who I I think genuinely deserve the title. But what does the term populism actually mean? How can it include people with wildly different ideologies under the same umbrella? Maybe somebody can pull up in a dictionary quickly uh, the phrase populism, but I'm not prepared to concede that some of the rhetoric that's been popping up is populist. That's nativism, or xenophobia. Is it possible to be a progressive populist? And even if it is, should progressives use that label? Today, on the Weekly Economics Podcast, we're talking populism. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith, stay with us.
1: And in a sense, the establishment and their camp followers in the media are quite right. I don't play by their rules. Because when we win, it is the people, not the powerful, who win.
2: Big thanks to Hannah Wheatley for taking the reins on last week's episode, but today I'm back to rule over this podcast with crowd-pleasing lines and an iron fist, just in time to talk populism. I'm really pleased to be joined by the academic and writer Eliane Glazer, who's also the author of Anti-Politics on the Demonization of Ideology, Authority and the State. Hi Eliane. Hi. Thanks for coming in on this sweaty, sweaty day. <laughs> Good to be here. Uh, and we're also joined by Michael Walker from Novara Media. Hi Michael. Hiya. Hi. Okay, so let's dive in. There's a lot to talk about today, so we're going to get straight into the big question. Can populism be progressive? So this is a bit of an unusual episode for us, and we're going to get into the economics of it in a minute. But first, we'll start by talking definitions. So a lot of really different politicians have been described as populists, from Corbyn to Trump. Um, Can either of you define populism for me, and what are the key features of it?
0: I could start with uh, defining populism as it manifests on the right and on the left. Um, So on the right, populism basically harnesses a public anger towards finance power, corporate power, and turns that anger onto the political establishment. So right-wing populism is anti-political, it's anti-what they call the political elite, anti-government and so on. So you get phrases like the Washington Swamp or the Westminster Bubble... So it sort of kicks up against the government and against political establishments, but it also kicks down um, towards minorities and immigrants. Mm. But populism on the left is really a critique of the way in which the political establishment has been captured and corrupted by the forces of financialization and corporate power. So it kicks up at the establishment and says that that establishment is elite because it's been corrupted by those economic forces.
2: Mm. Michael, what do you think?
1: I agree with all of that. Um, populism has been famously quite hard to define, I think partly because there isn't a populist movement or a canonical populist text. Uh, so if you want to know what socialism is, you'll look at the Socialist International, or you'll look at what Marx wrote. If you want to know what liberalism means you might read J.S. Mill or look at what the various liberal parties have sort of had as their official policy platform. Whereas there isn't a united populist movement because you can have very different politics and be a populist. Obviously, there isn't a global movement of which Corbyn and Trump would both claim they are a part of. Mm. That's led some people to say it's a thin ideology. So it's sort of a loose idea that power should be with the people and that for whatever reason, it's currently not Or if the populist is in government, it's under threat. So the power of the people might be usurped. And you can sort of distinguish that from liberalism to the extent that liberalism thinks it's really important that power is divided and that the power of the people is mediated somehow to stop the tyranny of the majority uh, doing irrational things or persecuting minorities. And populism is less, populists are less worried about that. So populists think if you put intermediary institutions like uh, an independent judiciary, or bicameral parliamentary systems you make more opportunity for corruption and bureaucratic elites to stand between the people and their democratic will because it's thin that means it can be combined with many other ideologies so if you think power isn't currently with the people but it should be there's many a way that you can do that
2: mm. a question i wanted just to just to ask off the back of that is then is po- is populism as a term to kind of dis- Describe politicians. Uh, is it a bit of a diss? Do people use it as a as a bad thing? Basically, is it a way of just kind of dismissing ideas that you don't like, or is it is it is it a good thing? And and the second question off the back of that then is of course the Corbyn question, which is is he a populist? And if so, what makes him a populist more so than people like Obama or you know Blair?
0: Yeah, I don't. I mean, it's 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 an ambiguous word. I think at the moment. I think there's quite a lot of. Um, valorization of populism at the moment i think it's quite a popular term so i think um but but people use it in different contexts you know in the states you, people talk about economic populism which is sort of Broadly progressive economic policy, so it's very confusing actually. But then, and then people say about Corbyn you know, that there's been this move to style him as a, a kind of left-wing British Trump, so to to use populism as a you know um, positively as a political strategy. So, but on the other hand, people say, oh, that's a populist policy. In other words, you're just um, invoking that policy to to appeal to people and to be popular in a in a sort of cheap way. Mm. Michael, what do you think?
1: Uh, I'd say populism is probably value neutral ultimately. So I think it comes with a uh, diagnosis of why things are currently going wrong, which is that the people don't have enough power, which may or may not be true. I mean, you could be a, you could have quite a well-functioning democracy, but a demagogue comes along and he says, "Oh, this well-functioning democracy is not representing your interests particularly well." So let's clear away the courts. Let's clear away parliament and invest all authority in me. So it could have been an incorrect diagnosis. I think at the moment, lots of the populists that we're seeing have a correct diagnosis that there isn't enough democracy and that people don't have enough power because we have transferred too much power to bureaucratic institutions. And then from that diagnosis can come a lot of different solutions.
2: Mm.
0: It's very interesting, isn't it, the relationship between populism and democracy, because... democracy means rule by the people. So what's the difference between democracy and populism? And I like to think of it as a a volcano. So the the lava comes up and that sort of authentic, you know, political, public, popular will that actually democracy and a functioning democracy, that popular will can actually um, be represented at a high level and, and people can have power. And then that lava cools down and it gets ossified and you get this rise of technocracy and bureaucracy, and as has happened. So so populism is a destructive force. It's anti-political. It's against the political establishment. But the, the interesting question for me is, is it against the political establishment per se? Or is it a critique of what's happened to that political establishment during that process of you know, the dominance of neoliberalism and that sort of ossification, you know, the sort of decaying of d- democracy that's happened over the last four decades?
2: So let's, let's drill down a little bit more into the case for populism then. I guess a couple of questions. One of them would be, do you think that there's been a resurgence of populism? And then kind of leading on from that, why? And, it, and what does that mean?
1: So so, populism is a difficult subject because we can bring in different definitions the whole way throughout the Mm. conversation. But one, one thing it's also talked about as well as a sort of thin or vague ideology is just as a strategy or as a discursive strategy. So if you look at someone like Jeremy Corbyn, his ideology isn't really populist, he's a socialist. But they and their team have decided that a populist strategy is a very effective one in an environment where the public feel like they don't have enough power. And another sort of useful... Thing to draw out i think about left populism it was similar in right populism but there's a specific debate between populism and sort of traditional socialism which is do you appeal to the working class or do you appeal to a constituency that's slightly broader uh, which includes the working class the middle class the precariat whoever and that's why you end up with more expansive terms that are often based on the people sometimes the nation which can be progressive inclusive or exclusionary, I imagine we'll talk about that later, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll stop
2: there.
0: Yeah. yeah, but it's interesting is that the question of whether populism is really a political critique or an e- economic critique. So is it is it a critique of the way that poli- the political system doesn't represent people properly? Is that the people of populism or is the people, and I think it's also carries this sense of actually ordinary people, i.e. working class voters, you know, the, the 99% you know, so it's also a kind of an economic critique, but it's, it's ambiguous and that can be pragmatically um, useful, especially in an age when the word left is toxic. So we don't say the left, we say p- the people.
2: Mm. So in terms of the arguments for populism, Michael, I'm going to ask you, what's good about it?
1: What's good about populism? Yeah. So if you're on the left, I think it's a very useful strategy. I think it's... I mean, in the UK... And actually in Spain and in lots of sort of the new electoral left movements, people who've come from the non-electoral radical left and gone into electoral work. Populism kind of just means taking what people actually think seriously. (laughs) Mm. Mm. So it's not uh, how it differs from the mainstream parties is that it's got a critique of the current way things are run. How it differs from how the left used to be is that it cares about what people actually think and trying to persuade them. So on both of those counts, I actually think it's a good thing. (laughs) I think Mm -hmm. it's good to have a critique of the status quo. And I think it's good to really care about where ordinary people are at. Problematic word, ordinary people. But the majority of people are at, let's say, Mm because you want to win power. Um, So I'd say on those grounds, it's good. I'd say it needs to be combined with something else to not be... uh, uncritically reflective of what are people's current preferences. You also want to lead, right? You want to Mm. lead and direct uh, public opinion on what you think is a progressive direction instead of just saying, we will reflect whatever the people currently want, whether or not you think that's a positive or negative thing.
2: Mm. Yeah, so Ellie, I'm just following on on from that. Do you have any thoughts on on where populism can lead us? I think the
0: two main problems with populism are firstly that it is non-ideological That's why you get this problem of, um, you know, in Spain, uh, you know, you have the rise of um, um, Podemos, but then, uh, you know, who a populist party, you know, declare themselves to be post left and right, but then you have the rise of um, Ciudadanos, you know, another, you know, people's party, citizens party, who are centre right you know, in in Italy, you know, Beppe Grillo, he declares himself to be post left and right. And then, of course, we've seen they go into um, coalition with this far right anti-immigration party. So I think there's a real problem with being just representing the people rather than the left, in my view, because it's it, you, you enter into very ideologically slippery territory. And it also imagines the people as having a, a single coherent set of beliefs, when actually the population is ideologically divided. And that's sort of part of a healthy democracy, that those different views are represented in the political system. And I suppose the other problem I have with populism is that it's anti system it's in a way that the populist right has become very vocally anti-system in mm-hmm. recent years, which is an interesting development because they used to be pro-institutions. I think the left really has to engage with what we think about institutions because we've been very used to being anti-institutions because they haven't been working very, very well. But actually, what do we think about institutions themselves if, if they could function properly?
2: Mm. So, Michael? The, the, uh, the charge is populism is without ideology and anti-institutions. What do you think about that?
1: Uh, so I think it has a, yeah, I think it's probably intrinsic to populism that it's anti or has a critique of current ruling institutions. Whether that makes it anti-institutions as such, I think is an open question. I don't agree that populism is post-political. I think it's a style of politics which has very explicitly a critique of the status quo and competes in elections based on representing the people against some sort of vested interest. So if you look at what the centre-right and what the centre-left uh, did over the last 30 years, is they would compete on kind of technocratic grounds. So they're called catch-all parties, which means they try and appeal to basically everyone in society, or 51% of society, by saying, we're going to be the best managers. And what the populist left or right say is that management of this system isn't working, And the reason the policies of the current government aren't working isn't just because they're intellectually mistaken and they're applying the wrong policies. It's that they are the wrong people who are interconnected in a system of vested interest, which is why it's rigged. And I think that unless the left enters into that kind of debate where you're talking about a rigged system and how you are going to challenge vested interests, um, the right will do it first. So there's mm. there's lots of people whose argument, so people like Chantal Mouffe, their argument for left populism is that in an era when there's little confidence in the status quo, if the left don't do the populist thing, then the right will be able to yeah. uh, monopolise the discontent that exists within the public.
2: Mm.
0: Yeah, well, it's very interesting because Chantal Mouffe, she's just published this recent book for left populism. And I was reading it, yeah, I haven't read the whole thing, but... I, for me, that's just popular left. I mean, I know she's, you know, she obviously with Ernesto Leclerc, Chantal Mouffe really pioneered left populism and theorised it. But um, you know, the Bernie Sanders, you know, Jeremy Corbyn, they, they have made electoral success, you know, gains in the last few years in surprising ways. And I think the times when they have been most successful is when they have a uh, an analysis of, of the current state of our um, society and economics that really rings true for people, which is not necessarily a populist um, critique, but it's a political critique.
2: Yeah, but perhaps it's impossible for a successful left populism to still be populism. Would it then become something else?
1: Well, if it enters into power and stops having a critique of the current institutions, it probably would. So, I mean, one thing that's often said about populism is once it gets into government, it starts being populist. Yeah. That's not always true. So someone like Viktor Orban or Hugo Chavez, sort of lots of their political discourse when in power was about an outside threat that was always about to usurp them and usurp the will of the people, whether that's the Americans or for Orbán, liberal elites, the EU, and then ethnic minorities. So I think you can be a populist in government. I think, yeah, you want to move to something. I think you probably shouldn't be a populist in government, basically, after Mm. maybe two years, you probably need two years to destroy the elites. And after that, you'll have (laughs) have to build something slightly more sustainable, which you're not just attacking from the outside.
2: Yeah, where does that leave us? Well, well,
0: now we're in Brexit um, paralysis. So Uh. the irony, you know, is that Brexit is in many ways a populist formation Mm. because it was a a rejection of um, both the supranational authority of the EU but also of the Westminster elite and the dominance of the South East and so on. So Brexit is anti-political in that sense. But the irony, of course, is that now we have um, wall-to-wall technocracy in these competing technical arrangements um, for um, managing Brexit?
1: I think I disagree with calling populism anti-political, at least in terms of Brexit, Trump, Corbyn. I think, so if if you're looking at Brexit, on one sense it was about, yeah, we hate the elites. On the other, there was a specific policy platform that had been off the agenda because it had been rejected by all the mainstream parties for a very long time, which was that Globalisation isn't quite working, we can't just accept managed decline in many parts of um, the non-metropolitan UK. And Brexit was the first time that that policy could be read into a choice that the electorate had. So I think to call it anti-politics is potentially a little bit dismissive of how rational it was to vote Brexit if you were someone whose region had been condemned to gradual decline.
0: Yeah. But that's an economic critique. So I think that's the problem with the populist right: is that they've, you know, ten years on from the financial crash, we should have had an economic crisis or a crisis in in the financial markets. But instead, what we have is a political crisis. And so all of that economic um, anger and injustice has manifested as an as a as anger directed at politicians. And um, I think what happens in in Brexit and in populism is that the political and the economic get bound up together in illogical ways. So the argument against um, global capitalism, which was part of the compound of the Brexit anger or Brexit position, beca- became an anti-political attack on Westminster in the EU and, of course, an anti-immigration argument. So it's against free movement of people rather than free movement of goods and, and capital. So I think you get these unhelpful um, combinations of targets. Mm-hmm. And actually, what we need is to separate out those targets.
2: So is one of the problems then with populism that it oversimplifies in problematic ways?
0: Yeah, and it's a deliberate strategy. So Trump, in his inauguration speech, he said, for too long, you know, the, our politicians in Washington have, have prospered while the poor have been, you know, have lost out. Our politicians have, have been made richer and, and, you know, the left behind have have suffered. And so that was a, a really smart um, yoking together of anger towards multinational corporations and um, global capitalism, and um, but putting that onto Washington. And my view is, you know, if only politicians did have a bit more power compared to finance and corporate clout.
2: And so obviously, uh, here at the New Economics Foundation, we're always talking about um, a kind of people-centred new economy, where which is about looking after people's needs and the planet and all those kind of things is that idea of a people-centered economy a populist one
1: uh i wouldn't not i think it could it could be incorporated into a populist argument and a populist strategy and a populist uh program well as, as i say i don't really know if programs can be populist but i mean mm. i think that could be incorporated into a populist political project i don't think it's as such political like particularly populist mm.
0: Left populism argues against the domination of of politics by economic interests, so that's kind of people centred. But as I said, in America, populism, economic populism, just can mean just progressive economics, so economics that produces less inequality. Mm. Um, so that comes back to the ambiguous de- definition of the word. But then it's interesting, isn't it? Champion economics. Well, there you get a kind of weird left right ambiguity because you know in some ways the policies are benefiting blue collar workers and in other ways they're absolutely you know making life much worse for those mm. voters so so i think the yeah i think the political valence of the of economic populism is quite interestingly up for grabs at the moment
2: mm. i wanted to know if you think that there's a there's a conversation to be had about progressive patriotism within the conversation about populism, or if they're two completely different things, and how that links to some of the things that we've been discussing around the particular context in the UK.
1: What Podemos, and they draw this from the cloud, talk about a lot, is the idea that there are these floating signifiers that people care about. And that if you control the meaning of them, you have a serious political advantage. Mm. So whoever, defines what the national interest means. Whoever defines what Englishness means, whoever defines what Britishness means, they have really, well, they have an advantage in terms of winning an election, but they've also had a massive impact on politics. If you give over Englishness to the right, then you are as progressive at a disadvantage. So the idea is you have to fight for what these terms mean because these these terms are always gonna be incredibly powerful in politics. You can't Mm. avoid that. And it also comes down that last point comes down partly to populists taking people seriously in terms of what they believe and what they say they believe. So whereas, uh, particularly vulgar Marxists might see the nation just as false consciousness, populists don't normally have a theory of false consciousness because you take people to a degree at their word.
0: Mm. Mm. But you see that, see, I, I, I always get attracted to this question of false consciousness because I, I think it's such a taboo, you know, in, in polite conversation but actually, we really need to talk about this. You know, so when people are racist, you know, do we say, oh, no, you are really racist? Or do we say, actually, you're just really economically, you know, in a bad place? Mm. <laughs> the relationship between economics and culture, it, I think there's really more work to be done to try and unpick those two things. Mm. Yeah, James Meek's written very interestingly about this, actually, in relation to you know, these kind of left behind communities, um, whose industries have moved abroad you know is this about culture is it about place and identity and community and all these important values you know and actually people actually say no this is not about economics This is about actually don't cheapen my point this is about value you know values which are intrinsic mm. or actually is this an economic argument about um, economic injustice and I think I think it's really important to kind of disentangle those two things.
2: So what mainly what I feel like one of the things I've learned in this conversation is that um, populism is is a much more intangible um, kind of concept than uh, than I think most people would would assume. It does kind of just sound like it means popular, right? It just means what people are, are liking at the time, perhaps you know, like pop music or whatever. But obviously, it's a lot more complicated than that. And so my question is: Is it a useful term? Is it a useful label? Should we be using it at all, or sh- should we be looking to something that's actually more descriptive of what we're aiming for?
1: I think it has its uses.
2: Okay, I mean, I think you can
1: also talk about degrees of populism. So Mm. politicians who rely more on uh, a discourse that talks about the establishment and the people. I mean, Tony Blair talks about the establishment and the people sometimes, but it wasn't Mm. as central to his discourse as it is to Jeremy Corbyn, which makes Jeremy Corbyn more of a populist. Mm. But Obama talked quite a lot about establishment and elites and the people but obviously Bernie Sanders that's more central to his argument and so he's more of a populist. Mm. <laughs> and I do think you can look at the situations where people tend to rely more on populist arguments which is not that I've got the rationally and technocratically better policy but I represent the people against a, an elite who've rigged politics and rigged the economy and we've got to as a movement unrig it. And I do think yeah that's that can distinguish between technocratic politics and populist politics. Technocratic Mm. politics can be popular, though. So that's why Mm. I don't think populism is just popular. Yeah, yeah.
0: I think populism and technocracy are... They're often portrayed as opposite poles. But I think the third term, as it were, is ideology. And it's interesting, this reference to Tony Blair. And I think he was a populist politician because, you know, he had this whole thing about listening... To voters, you know, focus groups. and for, But for me, that's where the rot set in, you know, this kind of attempt to, to reach the myth, mythical appeal to the mythical centre ground and so on. You know, and I think actually, when politics say explicitly what they believe, that's when people can rally around a clear vision. And mm-hmm. I think that's really when you get um, change, and I think a lot of the political campaigning that was really successful in the Sanders campaign, you know, indivisible, and you know, it's kind of door to door, um, face to face, town hall campaigning. You mm-hmm. know, that was a, like a grassroots, popular attempt to people get to, to get people involved in mainstream politics around a clear vision. You know, that's the kind of politics that I want.
2: Mm. I'm just trying to, yeah, I'm trying to resist going into the Bernie Sanders conversation. Maybe <laughs> that's for the pub. Anyway, thank you both so much for joining me for this stimulating conversation. If people want to hear more from both of you, how can they do that? Where can they find you?
1: NavarraMedia.com or follow me on Twitter at MichaelJSWalker.
2: Nice. Eliane? I'm on Twitter, um,
0: even though I disapprove of social media, um, (laughs) at Eliane Glazer.
2: And you have a book, Jonathan? I have a
0: book, yeah, it's called Anti Politics.
2: Okay. Wonderful. So that's it for this week, lovely listener. If you've enjoyed this episode or you have a question, I have lots of questions. You can always tweet us or drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Weekly Econ Pod on Twitter. The Weekly Economics Podcast is produced by James Shield and brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. See you next week.